If you would, take your Bibles today and turn to Romans in chapter number 7 today. Romans chapter 7. We've been going verse by verse, as most of you know, through the book of Romans. We start a new chapter today. And if you remember where we've come from, first five chapters speak of the fact that we are justified entirely by faith in Christ. So nothing that we can do, nothing that we can accomplish, it was finished upon the cross, like we just sang about. That all the work that needed to be done for you and I to be made right with God was accomplished by Jesus Christ. And that's a wonderful truth to lay hold of. What happens now in chapter 6 through chapter number 8 is the emphasis shifts from a focus on justification to, I guess this will be our little trivia for this morning, that not just the part of our salvation that is justification, but now we move to our, what's the word, starts with an S, to our sanctification. Now, there is a mistake that is often made when it comes to sanctification. A lot of people make the mistake in their Christian life of saying, well, I am justified by faith in Christ, so justification is up to God, but then sometimes people think, well, then my sanctification is up to me. That's a mistake, and we're going to talk about that a little bit. Now, it's, it's a, a fine balance to make because, as we saw last week, we did learn that there are expectations of the Christian life, right? That there are ways that Christians are supposed to behave. Since we are the ones who have been justified and sanctifies, sanctified, we do have a part in our Christian growth. But the working, the power, has to be entirely by grace. So what I want to speak about, really, it's kind of a, a mini-series inside the Good News series, and that is I want to talk about strength for the struggle. Because, and this really fits well with the, if you were a part of the adult Bible study this morning, this really dovetails nicely with that, because if you've been a Christian for a week or 30 years, you know that living out who you're supposed to be in Christ, it comes with a struggle. Right? Or am I the only one that struggles with that sometimes? It's a struggle. And Paul actually takes all of chapter 7, all of chapter 8, to talk with us about that struggle. If you want to do some more study on it, you can read the book of Galatians. Because the book of Galatians deals very heavily with that struggle. Of this is who I am, this is who God says I am, but now I need to experience that, that transformation in my everyday life. And that's where a lot of people get sidetracked on their Christian growth. So if you notice here in the introduction, I put this introductory concept for us. And they're very easily, these are terms that are very easily misunderstood. So we want to define them right from the beginning. Okay, What we're talking about is legalism versus grace. Legalism versus grace. Now, again, we have to define the terms because I, sometimes I don't even like to use that word legalism 
because it just gets thrown around very cheaply. In other words, if you were here last week, I said some things that were very direct about how we ought to live our Christian life. Behaviors that are worthy of the name of Jesus and behaviors that are unworthy. And some of it was very pointed and very direct. Now, some people would say, well, that was a very legalistic message. But in fact, that's not, that's not at all what we're talking about. See, the scripture is very, is very clear that there is an Old Testament law, but there's also a law of Christ. There's a way that we're supposed to see God changing us. Our lives ought to look different. And so it's wholly proper for a Christian to say, you know what? And, and, and we all define certain areas of our life. We, we're to be submitting to the word. The Bible speaks very clearly about certain things. The Bible speaks very clearly about our speech. The Bible speaks very clearly about how we ought to treat one another. The Bible speaks very clearly about some of the attitudes of our heart, like envy and bitterness and greed. The Bible speaks very directly about that. The Bible sp speaks very directly about how we are to behave sexually as Christians. There are some things that the Bible is very clear about. There are other things that we have to use biblical discernment. And some Christians will land in different places, and we, we extend grace to one another in those areas. But legalism is not trying to live a holy life before God, because that is good news. That's, what, that's exciting transformation, that God is making me more holy. Legalism, as we're defining it for our purposes, is this. It's the belief that my, well, there's two aspects to it. One, it's the belief that my ability to obey gives me special standing before God. That because I can write out the list of the do's and don'ts, and I can say, yep, clean, 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 right, 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 right. Because I can do that, I can say, look, God, I am holy. Or legalism is the attitude that says, I can accomplish all of this by my own ability. That is a trap that, a, that Christians fall into. We're saved by grace, and then we say, well, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Grace, on the other hand, is also misdefined. Some Christians will say, hey, man, we're not under the law, but we're under grace. And what they mean by that is not what the Bible means by that. What they mean is that they can pick and choose what parts of the Bible apply to them and not, because they are under grace. I say that, you say, well, why do you take the time to say this? Because you are a part of, at Mount Greylock Baptist Church, you are a part of a conservative, Bible-believing Baptist church. That's what we are. And you are here because we take the scriptures seriously. Now, of the group of people in this room, do we all agree on every verse and every chapter and every minute interpretation? We don't. But Lord willing, you are here because you take the Bible seriously. Do you? <laughs> you will encounter, you will encounter, and I, I want to say this carefully, but it's important. You will encounter Christians who they do love the Lord, who will tell you, listen, you should really just lighten up a little bit. 
In fact, why don't, you, why don't you worship the way we worship? Or why don't you practice the way? We don't worry about all those other things. I remember a story years ago. My dad was working with discipling a man. And I won't speak of the specific issue, but there was a specific issue that this man was really wrestling with in his life. And it had a hold on him. And my dad is patiently instructing him in the scriptures, discipling him. And he met a coworker who said, oh, you know what? You should just come to my church. My pastor doesn't worry about any of that stuff. And what that did, and we're not talking about honest disagreements here. We're talking about somebody derailing someone's Christian growth. In the book of Peter, it says that, and again, this isn't a dour or a sour message. This is good news. If you want to experience the best that God has for you, you are going to pursue a holy life. You are going to see God take away old habits. You're going to see God give you new desires. We are in, as Bible believers, we are in the life transformation business. It's what we do. It's what we're about. It's about getting more and more conformed to the image of Christ and experiencing his power and his glory until that day he returns. So some people misdefine legalism. But I have experienced legalism in good churches. It's a, it, it, can, it can really be a trap. I've also experienced ex misdefinitions of grace. Both of those are traps. The Apostle Paul lands, I don't want to say in the middle, like we always think that, right? Like, well, if it's not this extreme, it's in the middle. No, there's one way, right? There's one way, and there's a ditch on either side of the road. So, Look with me at the strength for the struggle. So I got a statement here in the, at the bottom of the introduction. We all face spiritual struggles. We desire to do what is right, but there's also a temptation to give in to our old behaviors or lifestyles. So when we face these struggles, remember the strength to overcome does not come from ourselves. And rather than try harder, this is the essence of it all, rather than try harder, we need to learn to trust more. We need to learn. It's not about trying harder. It's about trusting more. The closer we get to Christ, the more victory we will have. Well, the Apostle Paul really unpacks all of this. So first off, I want you to notice what he says. He really deals with the legalism issue straight off the bat in verses 1 through 4. So pick it up with me in Romans chapter 7 and verses 1 through 4. Know ye not, brethren? He says, I want, so he often opens with a question. Don't you realize? Do you understand this? Now notice the parentheses, for I speak to them that know the law. So he says, I'm, I just want to talk for a minute to those of you who are very law-oriented. Now, who would these people likely have been in the Roman church? What faction of the Roman church would this group likely have been? Does anybody know? they likely would have been the Jewish believers because they grew up under the old Ju Judaic law and now they're trying to work out grace. Now they didn't, they grew up under the Judaic law, but what was the problem is they grew up under the Pharisaical interpretation of the Jewish law. So they are like law plus. They understand the laws they have them memorized. Now, 
We do know that the Gentiles also, this doesn't excuse the Gentiles, obviously, but probably this is resonating the most with the Jewish faction in this early church. So he says, Know ye not, brethren, skip the parentheses now, how that the law hath dominion over a man as long as he liveth. There's that word dominion. We talked last week about the dominion of sin. Now we're talking about this dominion of the law. Dominion speaks of what? It speaks of power and authority and rule. He says, if you want to be under the law, he says, you need to realize that as long as you live, you will be under the power of the law. And so they might be like, okay, well, what do you mean? And so he gives an illustration. Now, he gives a unique illustration in verse 2 and verse 3. So you have to understand that this is illustrative. He says in verse 2, For the woman which hath a husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. He's talking about the laws of divorce and remarriage. But if the husband be dead, she is loosed from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband liveth, she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. What is he saying? He's using as an illustration. He says, well, you know the law. The law, the Old Testament law, gave very specific grounds for divorce. Divorce was only permissible under very and the New Testament actually backs this up, by the way. Divorce is only permissible under very few circumstances. So what would happen is the law was this. You can't, be, you can't be married and have a living husband and then go marry another person. Or else you are an adulteress or an adulterer, he says, because you are bound. As long as the husband is alive, you are bound. But when does that wife become free of her husband? When he dies. All right. Apparently she didn't like the guy too much. So she's happy now. So he's, he's, he's done. It's over with. We move on. Now the, under the law, if the husband is dead, she is free from that law and she's totally free to be married to another man. Like, okay, Paul, what, what is your point here? He's simply, he's actually not primarily teaching on marriage laws. He's using it as an illustration. The, the illustration of the first husband and the second husband. The first husband and the second husband. And what he says is this in verse number four. Wherefore, my brethren, ye are also become dead to the law by the body of Christ that ye should be what? Married to another. Now, the second husband is far superior to the first husband. The second, the second husband is far superior to the first husband. As long as the law, as long as the Old Testament law was in operation, as long as it was in operation, the people were bound to it. That was the system they were under. That was the control they were under. But through the death of Christ, and this is amazing, 
it, the book of Hebrews talks a lot about this. The fact that it was because of, there's an Old Testament and a New Testament. And at the death of Christ, the old system of law was abolished. Through the death of Christ, the Old Testament system died. In fact, there are some people, there are, there are even denominations of Christianity who try to bring the law back in. They try to say that we need to keep uh, dietary laws or we need to keep uh, Sabbath laws or we need to keep this law or that law. The fact is, the Apostle Paul taught very clearly that the death of Christ fulfilled the law and the power of the law, the dominion of the law, died when Jesus died. It says, by the body of Christ. That's an interesting statement. By the body of Christ. I think there's a little bit more to that than simply that, speaking of his death, what was it about his body? The body of Christ literally perfectly obeyed the law. The hands of Christ, the hands of Christ never committed anything that transgressed the law. The feet of Christ never brought him to a place that would have disobeyed the law. The eyes of Christ never looked in a way that would break the, the law of God. The body of Christ, and I think about this always when we, have, when we celebrate communion, his body was broken for us. The perfect body of Christ that perfectly fulfilled the law in every way. He, took, he, he not only fulfilled the law, but then he took all of our sin. A perfect body that fulfilled the law carried all of the sins of humanity. And so when he died, he accomplished many things. He accomplished forgiveness, he accomplished justification, atonement, satisfaction. All those were accomplished, but when he died, he was the only one worthy enough to say, the law is fulfilled. And when that happened, there was a new will and testament that was read to the people of God. And that is the New Testament, the dispensation of grace, the church age in which you and I live today. It was fulfilled by the body of Christ so that we could now be joined to another, even the one who then was raised from the dead that we should bring forth fruit unto God. So what is the purpose of this? Now, a lot of people will say, and again, this is where the misunderstanding comes. You'll notice there's in the previous chapter and in this chapter, there's a lot of talk about the freedom that comes from Christ, that his death gave us this freedom. It's freedom from sin, freedom from the law. Ah, but there's a purpose. And I love, Paul's writings are filled with purpose words. And I like to, to, to uh, circle them. There's a couple of purpose words in this verse. Uh, we're dead, become dead to the law by the body of Christ that. The purpose of being dead to the law is so that we be married to Christ. And then the purpose of being married to Christ, you see, there's a progressive purpose in the verse. Dead to the law so that we can be joined to Christ. But joined to Christ, not so we can just live however we want, the purpose of being dead is to be joined to Christ. Purpose of being joined to Christ and married to Christ 
is that we would what? Some of you got it. That we should what? Bring forth fruit so that we would live a fruitful life. In fact, I'm reminded here of Galatians 5.22. It speaks of this. Galatians 5.22-25, but the fruit of the Spirit. Why don't you say them with me? Ready? Is joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Against such there is no law. Hang on, before we go to verse 24, you see, the, you see there's a bit of, a, there's a bit of a, um, uh, irony in that statement there? There's no law against this, because this is Galatians. This is a legalistic church. Like, let me tell you the true law of Christ. It's heart transformation. Did you notice, in fact, if you could back up for me to, the, yeah, most of these fruits that God wants to produce in our life, they're not all about what we do but who we are internally. It's about a heart transformation. Now, if there's love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance, if that's happening inside us, if there's an internal transformation, I think we could expect it to flow out in our relations with others. And verse 24, and they that are Christ's, remember? First husband is dead. Now we're married to Christ. And then the purpose of that is for all of this fruit, all this full and fruitful life to just flow through us. They that are Christ's have crucified the flesh with the affections and lust and the powerful statement, if we live in the spirit. What's the answer to that? If you're a believer, do you live in the spirit? You do. So then let us also walk in the spirit. Not walk alongside the Spirit, but the Spirit lives in us, produces the fruit. We are in the Spirit, and the Spirit is in us. This is grace in operation, and it is far greater than any systematic uh, rote obedience. This is the transforming power of the Spirit in our lives, a full and fruitful life. Well, why is this so important? Well, I want us to pick up our passage here in Romans 7 in verse number 5. Why is this so important? Because, secondly, not only are we dead to the law, but Paul reminds us of the crushing load of the law. The crushing load of the law in verses 5 and then 7 through 12. Verse 5, for when we were in the what? That this goes, this harkens back to chapter 6, that the, that We've crucified the flesh, that we're dead to, dead to sin, alive unto Christ. But back yesterday, or however many years ago it was when you became a Christian, back then we were in. Paul uses this whole idea of prepo these prepositional phrases a lot, where it's a location, it's a place of belonging. We are in, we used to be in the flesh. Now we are in the spirit. You were in the flesh, but now you're in the spirit. You're in the realm of the spirit. But when you and I were in the flesh, the motions of sin, which were by the law. Now, this is an interesting concept. The motions of sin, which were by the law. What, what he's saying here is, what, well, you help me out. What is sin doing? What is sin doing? One word. Starts with an M. 
sin is, let's see, Bible scholars out there, what is sin doing in this passage? It's in motion. It's moving. Sin is moving. Do we want sin to be moving? We'll do this like we're in junior church. Do we want sin to be moving? No, we don't. How did I do? Good? All right. We, want, we don't want sin to be moving. But when we were under the law, when we were in the flesh, sin was moving. Now, this will blow your mind. What was moving sin? Was it the wickedness of the world was just moving sin along? Yes, but that's not the emphasis here. What is doing the moving? What is pushing sin along? The law. The law is moving sin. Where is it moving it? Where is sin moving? Oh, sin's not only moving, but it is, keep going in the verse, sin, but before we were in Christ, we were in the flesh, sin is moving, the law is moving sin, but what else is sin doing? There's another action that sin is doing here. It is, it's, well, you're right, you're right, but it's working first. It's working. It's working in our members. And we looked at this last time. Our members are what? They're the parts of our body the parts of our intellect, the parts of us, the parts of our being. So what he's saying here is, back in the old days, before Jesus, you were in the flesh, sin is moving, but it's actually the law that is moving sin along in your life, and then it's working out in your bodies, and then it is bringing forth a different kind of fruit, and that fruit is fruit unto what? Death. Ugh. This is not a good verse. Well, it's good, but you know what I mean. It's not a good description of who we are. But, and then, verse 6, six though, we're going we're gonna to read verse 6, but then we're going to finish with it. Because verse 6 is kind of in the middle here. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit, not in the oldness of letter. So, verse 6 is a little bit of good news, but now verse 7 and 12, I think, really picks up and explains what he meant in verse number 5. So remember, verse number 5, sin is moving. Sin is being uh, affected by the law. Sin is bringing forth fruit unto death in our lives. But now we come to verse 7, and he says, so what are we saying here? What are we saying? Is the law sin? Is Paul saying, well, the law was bad? Is that what he's saying? No, absolutely not. Nay, I had not known sin. You see, sin is identified by the law. Right? I think I'm a pretty good person. Always have felt that way about myself. Most people do. Until we encounter a law. We see this very early on in our childhood. Kids are doing really well. You want to, until you say, hey, you, um, you really can't sit on the table for dinner. You have to sit at the table. Then the child says, well, I don't like that law. Now, was the law bad? But what did the law do? The law revealed what's in the heart. It's not that the law is bad is that the law can only accomplish what the law was intended to accomplish. It's good, but it's bad news. 
because the law identifies our sin. In fact, he had said, he says in this verse, I wouldn't have known what lust was. I would have just gone along with my desire that would have brought death into my life. I would have just gone with my lust, but then there's the law. And the law said, thou shalt not covet. And now, great, I'm a lustful, covetous person. Now, was I that before the law came? I was, but I didn't know it. I didn't know that about myself. So the law condemns me. It's a crushing load. You stack your, I think it's, um, I don't know if anybody's ever watched those Way of the Master videos with Ray Comfort. How many of you have ever seen Ray Comfort, Way of the Master? Yeah, he does evangelism. On the, he does a lot of street evangelism in California. And he goes up to people and he asks them, basically, do you think you're going to get into heaven? And if they believe in heaven, some of them don't, but the ones that do say, yeah, I think so, I'm a pretty good person. And then Ray says this to them. He says, okay, well, what if God judged you by the standard of his Ten Commandments? Would you be okay? Like, yeah, I think so. And so then what does Ray do? He goes through the Ten Commandments. with. There's video, you can watch these videos. Very self-confident people. He talks about lying. He talks about lusting. And he says, he gets to the end and he says, so let me ask you again. If God were to judge you based on your ability to keep those Ten Commandments, would you be found innocent or guilty? And everyone says, what's the obvious? We'd be found guilty. We're found guilty. It's a crushing load of the law, but we need to feel it. We need to feel it. See what happens next. He says more. Verse number eight. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. This is the idea of just evil thoughts and actions. Just, just, I just got worse and worse. I realized I was worse and worse. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. And here's the statement again. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. Not only does the law identify sin, but if you were paying attention to what Paul said, the law actually inflames sin. Simple example. If you don't want someone, particularly a child, but it's, it, adults behave the same way. If you don't want someone to touch the cookie jar, what is the number one way to ensure that they do in fact touch the cookie jar? Write a little sign that says, do not touch. Do not touch. And what will happen? It inflames. It inflames. The law actually inflames the wicked desire within us. This is the problem of legalism. Now, does that mean that laws are bad? No. In fact, the New Testament is filled with, we'll use the word laws. What is the difference? If I live strictly by the principle of the law and my ability to obey, every time I see that law, my sin nature will say, oh, but you really want that. 
Oh, but that will, that will satisfy you. There's nothing in me that desires to obey that law. It's just a cold law, and I'm under sin. I am powerless to obey the law. What happens is, as Christians, you, you tell me, and this is kind of where we're going to finish. I'm, I'm a little ahead of myself. What changes now? That now that, I, now that I'm a Christian, I see that law, and it no longer inflames my passions. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit. When I walk in the Spirit, when I'm in communion with the Spirit, when I'm in fellowship with the Spirit, I see the law, and the Holy Spirit says, yes, that is for your good. That is from a loving Father. And I have given you the power to obey. See, now there's a different, oper there's a different working. There's a different operation in me. It's the operation of the Holy Spirit. Which is why if we try to live these holy lives, if we try to live to God on our own, we are, it's just like going to the days before we were saved. We're living by our own power. We're living by our own strength. And he says the law is a crushing load. It will destroy you. It will crush you. The law identifies our sin. The law inflames sin. But then we'll finish with this. The strength, the strength of the Spirit. The strength of the Spirit. Look now back at verse number 6. We read over it kind of quickly, but we need to see it again. In verse number 6. But now. But now we are delivered from the law. That being dead wherein we were held. In other words, the thing that used to hold its power over us. The thing that used to tell us, see, you're guilty. See, you can never measure up. See, you're filled with wrong desires. See, you're filled with sin. That thing that used to have the power over us, the law, it had all that power. It held us. It, hold on, it held on to us tightly. Now that thing is what? It's dead. It's dead. It died with Christ. Why? That we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. We serve in the newness. You see, what he's saying here is the spirit is greater than the letter. Is the letter of the law good? Absolutely. Is the letter of the law beneficial? But does it have, does it give us the power to obey? No, not at all. The letter is good, but the letter is inferior to the spirit. The letter kills, the spirit gives life. In fact, Paul would write about this in 2 Corinthians. I want to share this additional passage with you. 2 Corinthians 3 and verse number 4 through 6. And such, what's the key word? And such, trust. Remember, I said the key to, the key to strengthen the struggles is not try harder, but trust more. It's not try harder, it's trust more. The gospel that saved us is the same gospel, the same good news that gives us victory. And such trust have we through Christ to Godward. Not, verse 5, not that we are sufficient of ourselves, 
doesn't come from inside of me to think anything of myself, but our sufficiency, our power, our strength, our ability comes from who? Comes from God. Verse 6, who hath also, who also hath made us able ministers of the New Testament, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter, what's it do? Kills. But the Spirit gives what? Gives life. Our lives must be in the Spirit. Here's the danger. The danger is, you say, Ethan, it would be way easier if you would just come in here and make this a lot simpler and say, do this, don't do this, follow this, follow that, read this, don't read that. If you just give us a list and we'll obey it. It would be much simpler. There's a bit of mystery to how the Spirit works in our life, isn't there? There's a bit. Why? Because it's supernatural. Because we don't understand it. In fact, Jesus said to Nicodemus that you've got to be born again, Nicodemus. And Nicodemus was like, could you explain that a little better to me? Could you make that a little simpler? And what does Jesus say? If you know the account, Jesus says this. Well, let me tell you. The wind blows. The wind blows where it's going to blow. And you can't tell where it comes from or where it's going. And nobody was like, oh, now I get it. <laughs> and Jesus says, so Nicodemus, so is everyone that is born of the Spirit. If we could grasp a hold of it and completely understand it, he wouldn't be called the Holy Spirit. He'd be just called the other spirit. He'd be just like us. But he's not the other spirit. He's the Holy Spirit. And he just says this. You don't have to understand it, but you've got to believe it. You don't have to always understand how I'm going to do it. I want like one, two, three, let me, let me just know exactly how it's going to work. And he says, no, you've just got to believe. You've just got to trust. And you've got to believe that if you surrender your will, if I surrender my power, that he's just going to flow in with his power. I challenged you with this a few weeks ago. I'm going to challenge you with it again. You say, all right, well, please give me something practical. Give me at least something I can do. All right. Step one, get saved. Is that simple enough? Get saved. You're like, well, I am saved. Well, then we'll proceed to step two. But we can't proceed to step two until we're done with step number one. Step number one is get saved. You tell me, church, how does a person get saved? By one thing and one thing alone. It's one word. We have a couple English words, but we'll see what we come up with. We are saved entirely by what? Faith. Or by believing. Or by trust. We are saved by saying, Jesus, I cannot get to heaven by keeping the law. I don't care if it's a Jewish law. I don't care if it's a Baptist law or a Catholic law or Protestant law. Doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if it's a secular law. You give me a law, I'm not going to keep it. Won't happen. Whatever law it is, I will just prove how bad I am at keeping it. So, so step number one is get saved by what? Faith. Get saved by 
faith. And you say, well, that sounds wonderful. How do I do it? You come to God and you just acknowledge in your heart that you are an undeserving sinner and you believe that all that is required is his death and resurrection. And you say, Jesus, I believe that your power alone will save me. You can pray it. You can call it out to him in prayer. You say, Jesus, save me. I believe. And somehow that I can't explain, God will miraculously save your soul. You say, how do you know, Ethan? Because he promised he would do it. That he would save us by faith. Step number one. You want to get through these struggles. You want your sin to be dealt with. Step one is get saved. You ready for step number two? Everybody ready? Step number two. Get saved. You're like, well, we just did that. Can we do it again? Well, you can't do the once for all again. Once you're saved, I mean, you are saved. S-A-V-E-D. You are held by the power of God for all of eternity. You're on your way to heaven. You believe that, church? You are saved. But there is this, not just justification, but what's our concept? Sanctification. And in the moment of your temptation as a Christian, as a saved child of God on your way to heaven, you need to say, God, I'm being tempted. The sin has power over me right now. It shouldn't, but it does. God, please save me. Please save me. Do you believe that he will? But what happens is we get in that moment where we're tempted and we're like, oh, I, I, we either just wimp out and give in or we struggle and we fight and we think it's up to us. Well, the truth is, Paul would say this, as you have received Jesus Christ, so walk in him. The same way that you were saved by faith is the way that you are going to be sanctified by faith, by believing and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. But then don't I have to do something? Yeah, but it's just going to flow from you because you won't be doing it. Who will be doing it? The Holy Spirit. Of, of course, he's going to use the scriptures that you know. But here's the point. If we believe that God can do what God can do, you can be saved for five minutes. You can be a child of God for five minutes. You can have absolutely zero scripture memorized. And if you are in the time of temptation, God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that you are able, but will with the temptation also make a way of escape. He makes a way of escape, and it's through faith in what Christ has done. That's why I love the book of Romans, because it's all about the good news. It's all about the gospel. And the good news that saved you from your sin, saved you from hell, and saves you for a home in heaven is the same good news that can deliver you day after day after day. It's up to us to not try harder, but trust more. Trust more. So, all, all joking aside, has step one been accomplished in your life? Has there been a time in your life where you recognize that you were only saved by faith. Whatever your law was, again, could have been a Baptist law, Protestant law, Catholic law, whatever law that you thought, I can obey it, I can obey it, I'll be good, I'll be good, I'll be good. 
there has to have been a time in your life where you said, no, that law is dead. It's only by Christ. Jesus alone. Have you had that moment in your life where you said, Jesus, it's you and you alone? If not, you need to get saved today. You need to not wait any longer. You need to tell Christ that you let go of your way and you accept his way. I want to invite you to do that this morning. In a moment, I'm going to bow our heads. It'll be an opportunity for you to pray to the Lord. Tell him your faith is in him. Tell him you want his salvation. And then secondly, Christian, I've just got to believe that God is speaking to your heart about something in your life. You're like, yeah, it's not supposed to have power over me, but it feels like it has power over me. Why don't you surrender that to the Lord this morning by faith? Could we quietly bow our heads, close our eyes this morning? This is the time to reflect on the Word of God and to respond. Time to reflect, time to respond. So my question very simply is this. First of all, has there been a time in your life that you have received Christ as your Savior. If you say, Ethan, I'm not sure, why don't you make sure today, whether you're here in this room or whether you are watching this message, wherever you are, take a quiet moment and you can pray a prayer something like this. You can say, dear Jesus, I admit that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died for my sin and I call upon you to save me. I'm a sinner. I cannot save myself. I ask you, Jesus, to save me. If you would put your faith and trust in Christ right now, the Bible says you'll be saved. I don't always do this, but how many Christians out there, you'd say, Ethan, I know that I'm saved, but there is something I'm struggling with right now in my life. How many say God spoke to my heart? Would you slip up your hand, put it down? There's something that's got a hold of me. Hands up all over. Amen. Amen. Well, the instruments are going to just softly play. This is a time. It's it's an open invitation. Many people will pray at their seats. If you'd like to come and pray at the altar, you're welcome to do that as well. But let's go to the Lord. Let's just, let's make this a serious time. There's power in the name of Jesus. There's power in believing. Surrender this to God right now. Jesus, we thank you so much for the power of your spirit, the power of your word. God, I pray that you would stir our hearts. I pray this church that we would be a spirit-filled body. God, I pray that you'd use us to reach others, that you'd, you'd change our lives, God. I pray for anyone in here right now that is struggling with something in their life that's got a hold of them. But I pray that as they surrender that to you by faith, that you'd give them victory. We know you will. I pray as we struggle, Lord, help us to experience your victory. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Before we stand, 
I do want to say, if you have never yet trusted Christ as your Savior, and you say, Ethan, I just wasn't ready to do that yet. Maybe you're watching or maybe you're in this room. I'd love to, we'd love to help you. We'd love to share more scriptures with you. You can talk with me after the service or you can send us a message online. We'd love to, the most important thing is, do you know that your sins are forgiven? Well, church, are you thankful that we are not under the law, but we have the power of the Spirit? Dear Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that it truly was finished on that cross, and there is nothing that we can do or any merit that we can gain, but is by your grace alone and through our faith alone. I pray that you'll keep us uh, in remembrance of that as we go through through this, this week, Lord, and I pray that you'll give us all safety as we go our separate ways and bring us back this Wednesday to worship you again. We ask this in your name. Amen. We are so glad that you've taken the time to join us today. If you've been blessed by the message, or if you have placed your faith in Jesus today, we want to hear from you. Maybe you still have questions about what it means to have a personal relationship with Jesus. Please let us know, and we would love to answer those questions from the Bible. We would also be happy to provide you with the Bible and other free Christian resources to help you grow in your faith. You can email us at info at mountgraylockbaptist.com or send us a message on Facebook. You can also call us at 413-662-2107. We would love to hear from you, and our desire is to be a blessing to you in any way that we can. God bless.